scary girl. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead, Dead, Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where we get together and we talk about ghosts, true crime, paranormal, supernatural, just generally weird and eerie, like whatever we want to talk about because it's our show. And not yours. We were on it. In case you forgot, it's not your show. It only took us 114 episodes. And Sarah's excited to get into it because she was about to drop some some drama on me. And then she was like, wait, we need to record. record. Save it for the air. Save it for the show. I know. And I was like, that's what they say in the biz. My life sucks right now. And then I was like, oh, and then you were like, wait, did you hear about this? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Go ahead. Tell me about it. Okay, so. As most of you know, we are situated in Philadelphia, and we're both part of the Philly theater scene, and I'm just going to tell you, if you are not a part of the Philly theater community on Facebook, like the group, go and ask to join it right now. I'll approve you, because shit goes down in that group, and it's been going down over the past, like, week or so, and most of it is regarding certain theaters in the area like main theaters in philly center city and their people in power being called out for uh racial things sexual assault sexual harassment you know casting only only white people for their whole season and then putting out a diversity statement and other things like that and the big one who's been the target has been playpen which is like a big theater group, a big theater company in Philly. And I believe as of yesterday or today, their artistic director fully stepped down finally after this entire community went after them. Yeah. Went after them. And then they've also, so there's the other big question about like what's going on with theater right now is with Philly Fringe, Fringe is only going to endorse your show if it's filmed or if it takes place outside. Some theaters around Philadelphia, like Candlelight, were already opening shows. There was one theater that, again, is like a little bit out in the suburbs that put on Mary Poppins and a few of their cast members got COVID. And these are places that are like putting on shows right now. And I think Candlelight tried to open or like were announced that they were going to start their season in the next month. And everyone online was just like... Are you Why would you do that out of, are you out of your mind? How could you even endorse this? And so all of that to say that like the Philly theater community is cracking down on like anyone doing live theater right now because of all of the safety hazards. And then like I've seen them even comment if someone posted like a rehearsal for three people and those people actually this was probably in Houston. I don't think this was Philly, but this was in Houston and someone posted a rehearsal photo of like three people rehearsing and they weren't wearing masks. And all of the comments were like, Oh my God, how are you not wearing masks? How are you, how are you going to do the show like this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that to say, I have a show that's supposed You're to open the end right of now. September. Yeah, what's going on? Talk to me about that. Yep. So it's been all over the place. And, like, I've known about this show since last year. Mary Angela is, um, she's, like, the theater manager. Like, you know, runs all that stuff over at Alice Ooh, Lane. Ooh, she up and coming at Alice Lane. <laughs> oh, girl, yeah. She about to own that entire building. <laughs> <laughs> It's not going to be called Allen's Lane. It's going to be called Mary Angela's Lane. Lane. It's about to be. 
Anyways, so because, you know, I'm friends with Mary Angela, Mary Angela, of course, has talked to me about all the precautions that Alan's Lane is planning on taking. And the original plan was to open but only allow 20 people in the house. There's only six of us in the cast plus our stage manager. There's only seven of us who interact with each other. And the air to the theater is pumped from the outside. So it's not like we're just circulating the same air throughout the theater. Right? But we were, the actors were going to be performing without masks and people were going to handle the audience like they handle restaurants right now where you wear a mask until you sit down and then when you sit at your table, you can take your mask off to eat. But if you move from your table, you have to put your mask back on. So those were the original plans. But now with everything going back, our director talked to us last week and is saying that now it's going to look like we might only be filming it and that we will not be getting together physically to do rehearsals until the middle of August, if even then. She asked how people feel about wearing masks around each other. And a few of my castmates are like, I will only wear a mask. Like, I don't want to not wear a mask. And then the other thing is if we do start rehearsing together, Stephanie, we're going to be rehearsing outside. Oh, my God. It's so hot. worst. (laughs) Rehearsing outside is is the worst for so many reasons. For those of you who don't do uh, any theater, if you've ever had to rehearse outside, even if it's not the temperature, like, you don't want to be outside. People are like, what are those people doing? People come up and, like, they want to talk to you. They want to look at what you're doing. Some people are, like, people are yelling because they're outside. And they're, like, they're kids. They want to play around. They want to do whatever. You have no control of the environment when you are rehearsing outside. And it's difficult. And not only that, we're doing it the middle But it's also fucking hot. And with a mask on. And I'm like, I, I know masks are breathable, but when you accumulate enough sweat underneath it, you're just like, oh, my God. So. That's my thing. I feel my, like, wet mustache all day. Yeah. I'm like, ugh, ugh, yep. ugh. And then I feel my wet mask all on my face and on my nose. Anyways, not to say to don't be safe, wear your mask, deal with your sweat. But this whole process has just turned topsy-turvy. And um, we Theater don't. Theater is crazy y'all we don't know what's gonna happen we don't know if we'll be putting this on its feet we don't know if we'll be doing like performing it twice and filming it we don't know if my director is saying maybe we can do a zoom presentation but mary angela i believe says that's something that's not feasible for the center to do i don't know i'll find out when i get to rehearsal in an hour and a half and mary angela talks to us about all of the plans but as of right now our show eurydice will be proceeding with at least filmed performances for people to have access to but to be honest stephanie even with that i'm like if we can't get together to rehearse in person what are we filming why can't we just table this until next year you're going to be the best fucking rock. I'm going to be so loud that anybody ever saw. It's going to it's been it's been an experience. So so far we've done all of our rehearsals via Zoom, which is real fun when people have lag. Oh yeah, it's I'm sure fun. it's incredible. So you said seven people? Yes, there's seven of us. Gross. It's not Gross. a huge I mean it's like it's not a super huge cast. Um, no, but I mean to have that many people on Zoom. Yeah, it's like the Brady and Bunch. And you're like trying to deal with, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Oof. Big oof. So we'll see what happens, y'all. I had a show. It's out there. Corona 2020. I'm in dramaturgy for a show right now because we're just talking about it. It's a wash. It's all a wash. It really is. It doesn't count. Can we just like go back? Right? That's why I'm like, how? Let me figure out how to do art at home because I need to do some art and I'm tired of not being able to go anywhere. So I'm trying to learn how to do shit on my iPad and. I want to make more YouTube videos. I'm depressed. but I Don't go not. down that YouTube. Don't be like everyone else. I don't want to see a video that's like, I'm Stephanie. 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 Is that the title That's of this me. episode? That's me. Um, well, if you listen to her song, I'm Poppy, which is the first song from her album, Poppy.Computer, she spells Poppy a bunch of times, and then she goes, that's me! P-O-P-P-Y, I'm Poppy, P-O-P-P-Y, I'm Poppy, P-O-P-P-Y, I'm Poppy, P-O-P-P-Y, that's me! Every time I hear it, I do, you can't see it, because this isn't a visual podcast, but you can see it, Sarah. I do this, like... This Je suis la jeune fille motion from the Muzzy commercial, if you remember that See, as a child. I think of it as uh, Ask Ashley from the Amanda show, or from all that with Amanda Bynes. Mm. Ask Ashley, dear Ashley, that's me. Gotcha. Big wide arm swing. If it can be brought to Amanda Bynes, you're going to bring it. You know it. Are you kidding me? I do know it. Oh my God. What if she? What if she listened to our show? You would die. I would. I would die. No Somebody offense, Adam Rafai, but like Amanda Bynes. Woo! <laughs> Somebody at work the other day was uh, talking about watching. She's the man. <laughs> it's oh, it is art. Okay, it is so funny. It's so funny. It makes me sad that her body dysmorphia is so bad that she can't watch that movie. Because I'm like, your Aww. performance is fire. So I can't say that movie because her and her twin look nothing alike. Oh, I know. (laughs) They look nothing alike. And the whole premise, if you're not familiar with She's the Man, but for some reason are more familiar with Shakespeare, it is Twelfth Night. It's a modernized telling of Twelfth Night. So she is, you know, pretending to be her twin brother, who other people see, and they're supposed to confuse the two of them. And they're like, oh, that's right. Because they're supposed to look like the same person. Right. And I'm like, no... I've always wanted to put out a production of Twelfth Night with me and my brother. <laughs> because me and my brother, if you have, if you now don't know. Now that your know, head is shaved. <laughs> right. Me and my brother, y'all, we look just alike. <laughs> like, it's a joke. I would watch um, y'all's version of She's the Man. Right. <laughs> me and Phil are going to do a remake of She's the Man. We're going to recast Channing Tatum, though. Can it be Amanda Bynes? <laughs> No, no, no! I mean, we're gonna keep Channing Tatum. Like, we're gonna re, we're gonna cast him again in the same role. Oh, I thought you meant we're gonna recast him. And I was like, <laughs> you, hey, are, you, you want Amanda Bynes to play the Channing Tatum part? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Amanda, are you there? Can you hear us? That's the name of this episode. Oh. All right, Sarah, are you there, Amanda? It's us, Dead Time Stories. <laughs> isn't that book about periods yeah and i already i think i already named an episode that 
Or maybe I just yeah. put it in the description. Something that's like, right, a joke about, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. Something like that. Anyways, like are, we, that. are we diving into it? Yeah, I think so. Just, let's just dive head first. You know what? Actually, I think I'm going to belly flop into this episode. Oof. Let's just mm. whap right into it. And then tummy hurts just thinking about it. Just... <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> Stephanie. Leslie. Leslie. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Could you just imagine if I had another soundbite there from another celebrity? Or celebrity to us. All the celebrities. All of them. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Sarah, what are you talking about today? Oh my god. Who's going first? I guess me, because you asked. (laughs) I did. I did. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, if you want to get us a Carol Baskin cameo, we wouldn't kick it out of our inbox. Just make sure if you get the Carol Baskin cameo that you have her say, y'all ready to talk about some ghosts. Yeah, otherwise we I wonder if you it. can pay extra to have her say that she killed Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all, it's Carol and Dawn here. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Dawn, you ready to talk to them? Here, kitty, kitty. Oh, Oof. You remember when that was the thing we were holding on to during quarantine and we were like, oh, this is great. This will keep us entertained. That, that was, was years ago. ago. <laughs> <laughs> that was a decade ago. That I don't even know who that is. That was last millennium. That person who watched it. I don't know who that Sarah was either. That was a lifetime ago. It was back when she had a job. Ooh. Okay. Sarah, what are you talking about this week? <laughs> All right, so, Stephanie, I'm talking about a murder and a haunting. Great. All in one. I guess, yeah, a murder that led to a haunting. Yeah. What if they were unrelated? What if I was like, this person got murdered in this house and there was already a ghost You're like, I have two stories. Oh, oh, I thought they were unrelated. Like, this story's about a murder. Now, in another town, different house, nothing to do with what I just talked about. Here's a ghost. What if it was a, a murder and then the ghost was the witness to the murder and the ghost was trying to tell the police who killed the person in the house, but the police are not picking up on any of the clues? Isn't that like the movie Ghost? But isn't Patrick it his Sleazy's murder? ghost is, he's, tr- he know, he's like trying to solve his own murder and like show Demi Moore. Yeah, but I think this would be funny if like they were unrelated. crying over a clay wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that scene has to be in this hypothetical show. Molly, you in danger, girl. Molly, you been in danger, girl. Tell me about this murder um, and this ghost. So this, this Moira, Moira, I say it like that because it happens in Savannah, Georgia. Oh, I thought you were doing a weird New York accent. Oh, it was weird a for a second. Moira. So this is known as the Gribble House Murders or the 1909 Savannah Axe Murders. Was it an accident? Uh, let me ask you a question. Are you proud of that joke? um i made a little uh horror movie when i was in 11th grade called the accident about a farmer who fell off of their tractor and lost their arm and then went crazy and started axe murdering people but it wasn't actually axe because i didn't have axe it was really a hatchet who hatchet murdered people so it was a hatchet you don't say hatchet murder you say axe murder accident you know, it was, right. That doesn't flow off the tongue as well. I think it'd be hilarious if it's called an accident and then he just kills everyone with a gun. 
And you don't see an axe at all in the movie. I would be so angry. It'd be like Bird Box all over again. (laughs) Where's there a bird and why isn't it in the box? Okay. The bird was in the box, but you never saw the monster. Oh, that's right. You told me that on an I Seen Tit, which is on our Patreon. That's an aside. Let's get back to the murder. Um, so this, on top of being the 1909 Savannah Axe murders, this is also still known as the most diabolical crime in Savannah, Georgia. So the address was 401 West Perry Street, and it was a home that was situated near the railroad tracks in the neighborhood known as Frogtown, which was an in-between low-income neighborhood, you think, like, right on the other side of the tracks. Okay. The home was known as the Gribble House, and it was a boarding house that was home at the time to three women. You had 76-year-old Eliza Gribble, who was the owner of the home. She was originally from England, and she came to America as a young woman. And after the death of her husband, she moved to Savannah and decided to open the boarding house on Perry Street to make a living to take care of herself and eventually her daughter. At the time, her daughter had just recently returned to living with her mother, Eliza, after she had separated from her husband. So the daughter lived with the mother, and that was 36-year-old Carrie Olander. She had returned to live with her mother after she had separated from her husband, who remained in Memphis, Tennessee. The daughter, Carrie, was also partially deaf, and it was said that she could hear loud bangs and noises, but that was really basically it. The third resident was 34-year-old Maggie Hunter, and she had moved into the home the day before these events happened. She's a recent tenant of the boarding house as of like 24 hours, and she's also the topic of town gossip. So Maggie had also just separated from her husband, her third husband, whose name was J.C. Hunter. J.C. was also 30 years her senior, and he on his own had his own column in the gossip newsletter. J.C. Hunter was originally born a David Taylor. But after fighting in the Civil War, he found himself in prison on two separate occasions, one for stealing a horse and the other for bigamy. After his last stint in jail, right? After his last stint in jail, he was like, you know what? I'm going to change my name and make a new start. But anyone (laughs) who knew David Taylor couldn't be tricked by his name change because this dude was missing an eye and walked with a cane. Right. So it's not like he was an everyman. No. And he's like, I'll change my name. That'll fix it. And they're like, no one will find me. And they didn't even ask anybody's name. They're like, did you see that guy with the eye patch and the cane? And people are like, yeah, there's not anybody else like him around. That's it. They're like, sometimes he goes by Taylor. Sometimes he goes by Hunter. Sometimes he goes by daddy. No one knows. Sometimes he goes by hey you. Hey you. Um, so it said that, again, remember, he's 30 years older than his wife, Maggie. And it said that he would refer to his wife as his daughter and she would call him an old man. Of course. So when Maggie learned of her husband's past and his secrets, she decided that she needed to leave her husband with the hope that she'd start her life anew and make her own living as a seamstress. JC claimed that he, at this point, just wanted her to leave him alone. So he went and bought her a sewing machine so that she could move out and pursue this plan that she had. Yeah. December 9th, 1909. Just before 3 p.m. in the afternoon, a passerby was walking down the street by the Perry house and heard these odd sounds, groans, and what he would later describe to the police as just unnatural sounds. 
As he walked up the steps to the home, he saw that the front door was partially open, and as he grew nearer, he kept hearing the groaning noises. He tried to push the door open, but it seemed to be blocked, and once he realized what was blocking the door, he went and ran for help, because what he had seen was the body of Maggie Hunter blocking the front door. Police arrived on the scene a little after 3 p.m. to find Maggie Hunter in a puddle of blood on the floor in front of the front door. She had had her throat slit and her skull bashed in. But she was alive. No, I hate these. These are my favorite. (laughs) She ain't dead. She was alive. It was her groans that alerted the passerby. And as Maggie was rushed to the hospital, the police moved further into the home. Yeah, these are my favorite when you're like, there's no way, there's no way. She was alive! I hate them. <laughs> I was just talking about this with Josh, Josh Hawkins. Well, you're welcome. Who here, Josh. has two podcasts, and he by didn't the tell way? Us. Well, they one of them is just starting, oh, and okay. the other one just started in January. Because I was like, how did I not know? And I'm like, all right, they're not, they're like pretty new. That's fair. That's but fair. he and I were just talking about. He said that that's what that story stuck with him. So hard oh, about the, like yes, where like the son like yes. and the, where the dad went through like his whole morning routine yes. and he had been he had been axe murdered, he had, but he was still alive. He had been axe murdered, but he did not know it. Right, he didn't die. He did end up dying, but he didn't die yet. But he had been axe murdered, like he had been axed all up in the face. That's the Porco and, case, oh, and that God was damn it, poor Mr. Yeah. Porco. Josh was like, that one really sucked me. So here you go, Josh. Another, another, that bitch is still alive story. She had her throat slit and her skull bashed in, but she was alive. And it was because of her that someone found her. So it was her groans that alerted the passerby. Oh, just get ready. This story is, I almost said fun, and that's not the right adjective. Oh, no. (laughs) This story's a ride. So as Maggie was rushed off to the hospital, the police moved further into the home, only to discover a far more grisly scene awaiting them. In the hallway toward the back of the home, they found the body of Carrie Olander, the daughter of the owner of the house. She, too, had had her throat slit and her skull bashed in. However, unlike Maggie, she had also been sexually assaulted. They also found extensive defensive wounds on Carrie's body that showed police that she had fought with everything she had in her. So she knew what was happening. In the far back room at the back of the house lie the body of Carrie's mother, Eliza Gribble, again the owner of the home. Unlike the other two women, however, Eliza only had her skull bashed in. Her throat was not slit. She was found lying face down on the floor of her room next to a chair and with her newspaper laying by her body as well as her reading glasses. Police believe she was attacked from behind and never heard the murderer and there were no signs of a struggle on her body. They described her laying there almost as if it wasn't for all of the blood and her back, like the back of her skull being bashed in. They were like, it's almost like she's like sleeping, like she's just laying there. So Maggie Hunter fought for her life in the hospital as police and reporters and neighbors walked through the home looking for clues. And what year was this? 1909. Okay. So, so yep. I thought, like early. Yeah, early. Like so they let anybody walk around the crime scene. And remember, this happened at three o'clock. So it's the middle of the day. So news got out. Reporters started showing up. And the crime and happened. And people just started coming in. And people in. just started coming in. And were oh. able to just walk around. 
The crime happened early enough in the day on December 9th that that evening's newspaper featured the story. The paper's headline had read, Two dead and one dying in home, victims of assassins, with the second line of the heading reading, Detectives believe Negroes did the murder. And here we go. Yep. White people. White people. And again, you first look at all, it and you're first like. First of all, white people definitely committed this murder. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Number one. 100%. But this is right after God the Civil War in Savannah, God Georgia. damn it, white people. God damn it, white people. Yep. So you had this newspaper come along and the police are definitely like, there's no way a white man could have done this. <sighs> um, And they bust out thinking that an african-american did the murder and so of course that night the citizens of savannah are alarmed and they're frightened and riots broke out that evening with civilians storming the prison newspapers reported that the prisoners were afraid of the rioters outside by the next day the crime had, had national attention and a newspaper in california claimed that the night before 150 black men had been brought in and were being held in Savannah as possible suspects on the case. However, if that did happen, they were all let go. And after two days, the police still had barely any leads or suspects. Yeah. So there are two prominent theories at this point among the residents. Some people thought that the motive was robbery by someone who wanted to steal a trunk that was owned by Eliza Gribble that she claimed held valuable objects. So they think someone wanted to break in and steal her trunk. And in that theory, Maggie Hunter was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because remember, she had moved into the boarding home the day before these murders happened. The other theory is that it was Maggie's estranged husband that had killed her for revenge and that Eliza and her daughter were the ones in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is the wrong time. No matter the theory, however, the police were baffled because none of the neighbors claimed to see or hear anything out of the ordinary at the time the crime was committed. Which was in the middle of the day. In the middle of the day, and the home was situated right next to a railway station, And on the other side was a bank branch that housed 175 employees. At this time, it was lunch and dinner time over at the rail station for the workers. So people were walking up and down the street. It seemed very odd that no one heard these women screaming for their life. And yet, no neighbor claimed to hear anything out of the ordinary. But there was something. Maggie. Maggie was still fighting for her life in the Savannah hospital. Her condition between these, again, we're talking about the first two to three days. Her condition would continuously waver between improving and then would get worse. And at this time, Reverend John S. Wilder went to Maggie's bedside to try and provide her comfort and speak to her as she wavered between life and death. And she did speak. Later on, Reverend Wilder told police, I asked her if she recognized me. She looked at me carefully, said yes, and called my name. I spoke to her about her soul and prayed with her, and I asked her who it was that had assaulted her, and she replied, it was a white man, and called a name. People believe the white man she's talking about was her husband, J.C. Hunter, and they arrested him. However, they soon released him when his co-workers claimed he had left work that day only between noon and 12.30 p.m., 
They said that he was with them at the time of the murders, which they believe took place approximately around 2 p.m. that day. However, this contradicted a neighbor serving girl's account. She claimed that she had seen J.C. Hunter leaning against an oak tree in front of the house around the time of the murders. Also in her delirium, Maggie told the reverend that her husband had slapped her. And at that point, after hearing that, the police rearrested him. He had claimed that his wife had told him she would leave him alone if he had bought her a sewing machine so she could take in sewing and earn a living. <laughs> he said that he had purchased her a sewing machine, and then he had taken it to his wife and visited her on the morning of the murders to see if she was satisfied with it. So the timeline is he, she moves out. And is like, I want to make a living as a seamstress. And he's like, fine, I'm tired of you. Here's a sewing machine. Get out. And goes the day that she moves in, moves her in, gives her the sewing machine. And then he claims that the next day, the day of the murders, he went by to see if she was happy with her sewing machine. And that's what he told the officers when they rearrested him. However, as authors checked out this account, they learned that he had lied. And he had never gone over there that morning, as he said, and that Maggie was actually not at the house and she had gone and had breakfast with her sister. So he never talked with her about her sewing machine. She later stopped Maggie after having breakfast with her sister that day, later stopped at three nearby houses trying to sell some cloth and then went back to the house. However, there's another witness who claimed to have also seen Maggie going toward the Perry house around 1:45 p.m., However, this person says that when they saw Maggie, Maggie was very drunk. And this timeline of her walking around drunk at 1.45 would mean that she got home right after the other two women had been killed. And so as soon as she opened that door, her fate was basically sealed. And she's the one that put up a fight? She's the one who lived. Right. So basically what ha- what they believed the timeline of the murders was was someone broke in and they murdered the mom first in the back room from behind, killed her. The daughter didn't hear it. And when they went to attack the daughter, they assaulted her. She put up a huge fight and then they killed her. And then they say that probably around that time is when Maggie got home And they found some cloth nearby her body when she was found at the front door. And right next to the front door was a room where her sewing machine was. So they believe that she walked into the house around 2 o'clock, went straight to the left to where her sewing machine was, was setting her stuff down, looked up, saw her assailant, started to run to the front door and was attacked at that point. And then the person left. Either way, Maggie got home right around the time right before or right after the murders happened. Doctors tried desperately to save Maggie's life, but on the third day after her attack and the day after J.C. Hunter was arrested for that second time, Maggie succumbed to her wounds and she died. Uh Two days after her death, another revelation came out that Maggie had seemingly predicted this event and she had done so to her life insurance rep. Mr. Flatman had rushed out to, or no, Mr. Flatman was her rep, and Mr. Flatman had reached out to Maggie the day of the murder to collect on the premium on her life insurance policy that her husband had for her. Maggie didn't have the 60 cents required, and when Mr. Flatman told her not to worry, she had until Saturday to get him the money, 
Maggie responded that she would try, but she didn't think she would live that long, and that Mr. Flatman would be surprised by five o'clock to see that the bloody work would be done. What? Yep. So she apparently said to him, like, you're probably not going to get your 60 cents because, like, I'm going to be dead before five o'clock today. When he told police that, J.C. Hunter was, like, at the top of their suspects list. Maggie had implicated him, they believed. And then when the police searched his house, they found a bloody rag in the embers of his fireplace. However, there were also two more suspects still up in the air. A William Walls, who was a family friend, neighbors claimed to have seen him walking around the front yard of the house on the day of the murder. Walls confirmed that he had been there, saying that he was trying to see Maggie to have lunch with her the day of the murder because she was a close friend. However, it is widely believed that William Walls was Maggie's lover, though they both only Mm -hmm. referred to each other as a close friend. Close friend. So they've got two suspects and very little evidence, and we're about five days after the murders. At this point, police resorted to another investigative measure that they called the touch test, which this, in my opinion, is where the story reaches another level of fucked up. So at this point, neither J.C. Hunter or William Walls had been told that Maggie had died. They were both still in police custody. Each man was, at this point, individually led into a dimly lit room and presented with the corpse of Maggie Hunter. The police's thought was that, uh, the prevailing theory of the time, was that murderers, when confronted with the bodies of their victims, would confess. So they were like, they don't know she's dead. We're going to put her body in there, and we're going to walk them in there, and we're going to see how they react when they see her dead body. My God, what? Right? Isn't that fucked? So, ignorant of his wife's death, when they brought J.C. Hunter in, he responded with sobs and signs of considerable, considerable distress, and his question for them was, when did she die? And when they told him... When she had died, he began sobbing again and was taken away back to his cell without uttering a single word. William Walls' response uh, upon seeing Maggie's body was to simply hold her hand, and he reiterated again what a good friend she had been. So that didn't give police any sort of straight answer that they were looking for. Right. Both of them were very sad. Yeah, and you were just like, none of them confessed to anything. They both grieved in two different ways. Okay. Um, So they set off looking for another potential suspect. Now, keep in mind at this point, they still think there's no way this could have been done by a white guy. So in the meantime, they end up finding this one African-American dude nearby that someone claims they saw around. They arrest him. Then after a day, they're like, we have nothing to tie him to it. They let him go. And then at this point on January 25th, They then claimed that they now had the real murderer in custody, and this man was now a man named Bingham Bryan, the yard man at the murder house, and he was supposed to have killed the victims to steal what was in Eliza Gribble's trunk. So we're back to that original theory of someone broke in to steal whatever she had in her trunk, and Maggie Hunter was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we Mm -hmm. think that Bingham Bryan did it. So Brian, they also wanted to institute this, like, um, what did they call it? The touch test, 
But obviously Maggie's body was like in the ground. So what they did was they had a deputy sheriff bring in three wax figures from a department store that were shaped and looked like the three deceased. And three coffins from an undertaker. And a man who was considered faithful and evidently incapable of fright was hired to act as a ghost. These wax figures what? were taken. Yes. The wax figures were taken to the home. They were placed in the same positions in which the bodies were found. They were clothed in similar clothing and they were smeared with animal blood so that they looked as if they had the same wounds that the victims had. Then they placed the coffins beside all of the bodies. They blocked up all the windows with blankets to make the house as dark as possible. And then at night, they went and took this guy to the house and they gave him a flashlight to look around. Oh my god. And as the dude And was this was this suspect African American or was he white? That I don't know. And I should have done more research into that, but I think he was white. Because I was like, they thought he was black and was afraid of ghosts, so they made him go like look for ghosts in the house Ooh. in the dark. I don't know. I didn't pick up I thought uh, all I took was the fact that they were like, let's go put let's go put them like they were dead bodies and have but you're not, but you're not sure i'm not the no anything race. i read did not talk about his ethnicity whereas the other men um they were like this man was african-american okay Let me see if they talk about it so usually if the suspect was african-american they made a point they were like this that. dude was african-american yeah okay. everything they didn't talk about his ethnicity which made me think he was white which is also awful, you know, to, anyways, to be like, these people were, they just got rid of black. Assume. Here's just another dude. Obviously, we're not going to say his ethnicity, so he's white. Anyways. So they put him in and they gave him uh, a flashlight and told, and had him look around the house. And as it swept over the face of the first wax figure, Maggie Hunter, lying in front of the door, the deputy then put the flashlight on to Bingham Bryan's face and said, this is the last woman you killed. And Bingham Brian didn't budge. He walked through this house and showed no nervousness, no signs of being uncomfortable, just like stone fucking faced. The prisoner had no reaction to any of the other figures. And eventually Brian declared him insane or Brian was declared insane and no longer considered a suspect. So oh they were like, God. we walked you through this haunted house where you would come across these bodies and then hear a voice in the corner say, this was the last woman you killed. And you were just like stone faced. So you're crazy. And you, yeah, we, you can't have do that. You can't have this. <laughs> right? I'm what? so baffled by this logic. I'm so baffled by the logic of like, yeah, we're going to put you in like a made up haunted house that resembles the murder scene and hire someone to be a ghost to walk around and be like, to like spook you into confessing. You did it. You did it. (laughs) And then I also find it crazy that this dude was just stone faced. Just like, yeah, yeah. And what else you got? But he was declared insane and no longer considered a suspect. What the fuck? 
So on February 23rd of 20, oh, 20, February 23rd of 1910, a grand jury indicted J.C. Hunter, William Walls, and a third man, John Coker, for the murders. All three men claimed innocence. Yeah, John Coker's uh, a minor um, suspect that they brought in. You'll read why they were brought in in a minute, but all three men claimed their innocence. On August of 17th, J.C. Hunter was convicted and sentenced to death. And in March of 1911, the conviction and sentence were upheld by the Georgia Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the trial for John Coker happened. Coker became a suspect after another neighbor's servant girl told the police that he was involved and she had seen him. However, right before his trial, it came out that the witness was a cocaine addict who only gave up Coker's name with the hope of getting the reward money. So John Coker was acquitted. She gave up Coker's name because she she was trying to get that Coker game. She was trying to get some Coker for her game. I don't know. Yeah, it was hard. But yes. Coker. She was like, yes, please. (laughs) Um, And then as for William Walls, he was never even taken to trial. The police realized they did not have enough evidence against him. (laughs) So the only. What the fuck? The only person who went to trial was the husband. And the only. So wait, is is the only ghost in this story the fake ghost? No, but I kind of wish it was. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is a story about a murder and a ghost for hire. (laughs) I love, how did they describe him? They described him as faithful and evidently incapable of fright. And he was hired to act as a ghost. Well, then they need to hire the fucking dude that they took through there because he was incapable of fright. He was incapable. I mean, I guess the demand for ghosts for hire wasn't very high at the time. <laughs> so they were like, we already got one, and this guy was like, yo. They were like, ghost for hire, but we have ghosts for lower standards. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I figured the guy who was hired to be the ghost was like, I've got ghost tenure, and no one can take my job. <laughs> the fuck, man. Anyways, okay, okay. so <laughs> I'm not <All> done. Right. <laughs> this story is crazy. So. The only I person first. The, Mine's like bullshit. The, the only one who went to trial was J.C. Hunter, and he was convicted and sentenced to be hung. During his trials and in the aftermath, Reverend, Reverend John Wilder became J.C. Hunter's spiritual advisor. And you nice. might recognize that name because that's the same reverend that went and comforted Maggie in the hospital on her dying days and who heard Maggie say the name of her killer out loud. Uh, apparently, Reverend Wilder took a personal interest in J.C. Hunter's case, advising him to rehire a new attorney, and then he personally helped J.C. Hunter's new attorney handle an appeal for his clemency. Reverend Wilder even went and obtained more than 300 signatures on a petition asking for Hunter's clemency. The day of Hunter's execution was set for December 22nd of 1911, but his story doesn't end there. On the day of his execution, Hunter and his attorney had still not heard from the governor on whether he would be granted clemency or not, so Hunter asked to be baptized by Reverend Wilder. And so, in front of several witnesses from the prison, in the jail's hospital ward, J.C. Hunter stood in a bathtub partially filled with water with Reverend Wilder to be baptized. Before being dunked, 
Reverend Wilder asked J.C. Hunter if he was guilty, and Hunter replied by saying, Before my just God, I stand here and tell you that I know no more about the deaths of these three innocent women than a babe that is unborn. Before God, I am innocent. After Wilder performed the baptism on Hunter, he then asked him, If the governor shall let you die tomorrow, do you feel satisfied to go before God, an innocent man? And Hunter replied, I do, because I am an innocent man. And right after this, while he was still standing in the water, Reverend Wilder dramatically proclaimed that the governor had commuted J.C. Hunter's sentence. And it was true. The governor had, right at that point, granted him clemency. What? And he was no longer sentenced to be hung. He just had to serve out his life sentence in prison. Okay. What? See, I thought the priest was going to be like, or the reverend was going to be like, joke's on you because, bitch, she told me it was you. And then he, like, drowned him while he was baptizing him. No, some people believe that maybe Maggie didn't say Hunter's name because the reverend took such a personal interest. And the reverend never told the police the name that Maggie said. He just said, Maggie said it was a white man. So you need to be hunting a white man. Yeah. And... Then he he fought for J.C. Hunter. No one really knows. No one has any idea. Part of me wonders if Maggie said Hunter's old name and Reverend Wilder didn't realize. No, that was. However, I'm still not done. So he got, he was told now he just had to serve his life sentence in prison. Okay. In 1923, at the age of 77, J.C. Hunter, born as David Taylor, received a full pardon from the governor of Georgia, and he returned to the city of Savannah as a free man to live out the rest of his days. Sure. Till he died, he maintained his innocence. Sure. Right? You're just like, are you fucking kidding me? Okay. Are you kidding me? Uh. So to this day, we can't be totally sure of who took the lives of the three women in that home on Perry Street. Though, as most history will tell us, it's usually the spouse. Oh, yeah. J.C. Hunter walked away a free man. What we do know is that many citizens of Savannah believe those three women never left. The home remained a boarding house until 1941. So for another, like, 30 years... And people who was running it knew people. Okay. Um, and old tenants who lived there during that time passed down the stories that they would claim to still see red blood stains on the walls of the rooms where the murder happened. Fuck that. In 1941, the Gribble home was demolished and a warehouse building was built on the site that is now used as the car barn for the Savannah trolley tours. Many believe the portion of the building that was built on the original foundation still holds the shadows of the violence it saw. If you go to the warehouse now, they do have a, um, like a map up of the original floor plan, and they will show you areas in the warehouse. There's, like, one door that leads to an exit that they're like, that door, that's where the daughter was found. Um, they're like, then this other area, that's where Maggie was found. 
And people to this day who work there and who are around there claim to hear footsteps. Oh, they see and hear shit. And mm-hmm. see shadows. Fuck that. And uh, most ghost tours in Savannah still include this site as a musty, must-see spot. And in 2011, Ghost Adventures traveled to Savannah and investigated on the spot where the home used to stand. But like most Ghost Adventures things, they didn't really catch much. They didn't find anything, right? Sure. So that's my story of the Gribble House murders or the 1909 Axe murders of Savannah, or also known as the most diabolical crime in Savannah, Georgia. With one, four hire ghost and three ghosts who didn't ask for this. Wow. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's a good one, right? I found it yesterday and the more research I did, the more that I was like, what the fuck? What if we just call that the episode? <laughs> How long has it gone? Like, oh, um, yeah, it went a little like long. Like 50 minutes? It went a little long. We can do that. I mean, mine, mine is just short and like, mine's, mine's like not as... <laughs> Yours is like out there. <laughs> why did you? Why did you not be like? Yeah, you know what? You should go first. I didn't I'm know. Crazy. We didn't talk about it beforehand. You were we so excited. You were just so excited. I was. I was like, I can't wait to tell her about how the police threw this dude in a makeshift haunted house based off the true murder scene. And the dude walked through it stone faced. Like I was listening to a podcast about this story, and when she got to that part, I hadn't read about that online yet, and I literally was like what like jaw dropped it's fucking crazy isn't it isn't it so yeah i was like we can call it there if if you want give the listeners that to sleep on tonight like i can lighten it up a little bit it's just very mine's very mild mine was just a here's some facts a little palate <laughs> cleanser well give us a palate cleanser stephanie palate cleanser. stephanie what are your facts I was just going to talk a little bit about black cats today. Black cats? Black cats. Aww. Well, black cats. <laughs> so, Do they murder people or? <laughs> well, as as you know, in America, like, black cats are considered, like, bad luck, Superstitious, right? yeah. Um, I've said for many years that I want to have a black cat sanctuary because to this day, black cats are the lowest, uh, rate adopted cats. Which I think is crazy. Um, some people say that it's not, now it's not because of superstition, it's because they're hard to take cute selfies with. (laughs) You're like, (laughs) they blend in in the dark and I don't like that. (laughs) Right. So, um... One thing that I think is really interesting, so I've always, you know, I'm an American, so I'm used to hearing that they're bad luck, but black cats are actually considered a positive omen in Britain and Ireland. So the superstitions surrounding black cats vary from culture to culture, but black cats have positive associations in the Celtic nations and Japanese folklore. Scottish lore holds that a black cat's arrival at a new home signals prosperity. While Welsh lore states that a black cat brings good health. However, from both the Gales and Celtic Britons had traditions of feral and sometimes malevolent black cats. In Scottish mythology, a fairy known as the Cat Sith takes the form of a black cat, while in Welsh mythology, the monstrous Cath Palug grew from a black kitten. What was that? Cath Palug. Cat plug? Cath Palug. It's a... Uh, <laughs> C-A-T-H, 
P-A-L-U-G. Calf plug. Yeah, calf plug. There's also like um, a Welsh folklore uh, rhyme, but I'm not going to try it. (laughs) (laughs) So black cats were also considered good luck in parts of England. However, in common with other Germanic cultures, some areas associate them with witches and bad luck. But the mix of positive and negative associations may have given rise to the latter belief that black cats were omens of both good and bad luck. One tradition states that if a black cat walks towards someone, it is said to bring good fortune. But if it walks away, it takes good luck with it. Oh, no. I know. I'm like, come back, kitty. Come back, kitty. They walk away. They're like, I'm taking your good luck. Look at my butthole. Right. And you give them a little trying to get them to come back. Um, (laughs) Please. This tradition was reversed at sea, where 18th century pirates came to believe that a black cat would bring bad luck if it walks towards someone and good luck if it walks away. It was also believed that if a black cat walks onto a ship and then walks off of it, the ship is doomed to sink on its next trip. Oh, (laughs) no. Furthermore, it's believed that a lady who owns a black cat will have many suitors. (laughs) Meow. In most Western cultures, black cats have typically been looked upon as symbols of evil omens, specifically being suspected. Why are you laughing? Because I just thought, and I didn't say the joke fast enough, and you moved on. I was like, ladies with black cats get so many suitors because they got that good pussy. Mm, So in most Western Western cultures, black cats have typically been looked upon as a symbol of evil omens, specifically being suspected of being the familiars of witches or actually shape-shifting witches themselves. Most of Europe considers the black cat a symbol of bad luck, particularly if one walks across the path in front of a person, which is believed to be an omen of misfortune and death. In Germany, some believe that black cats crossing a person's path from right to left is a bad omen, but from left to right, uh, the cat is granting favorable times. (laughs) The black cat in folklore has been able to change into human shape to act as a spy or a courier for witches or demons. When the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock, they brought with them a devout faith in the Bible. Girl, it is, it is still killing us to this oh, day. Yeah, I was like, they brought it white and they never brought left. This country. They also brought a deepening suspicion of anything deemed of Satan and were a deeply suspicious group. Girl, still, to this day. To this day. They viewed the black cat as a companion or familiar to witches. Anyone caught with a black cat would be severely punished. They viewed the black cat as part of a demon or part part sorcery. These superstitions led people to kill black cats. There is no evidence from England or regular large-scale massacres of satanic cats or of burning them in midsummer bonfires, as sometimes occurred elsewhere in Europe. In contrast, the supernatural powers ascribed to black cats were sometimes viewed positively. For example, sailors considered a ship's cat would want a black one because it would bring good luck. Sometimes fishermen's wives would keep black cats at home as well in the hope that they would be able to use their influence to protect their husbands at sea. I think that's cute. In the, in the folklore of um, Chiole of Chile, black cats are an important element that is needed when hunting for the treasure of Carbonclo. 
Black cats have been found to have lower odds of adoption uh, in American shelters compared to other colors except for brown, although black animals in general take more time to find homes. The reason given include not only superstition, but the perception that black is boring compared to other colors, as well as the belief that black cats do not photograph well. Some shelters also suspend or limit adoptions of black cats around Halloween for fear that they will be tortured or used as living decorations for holidays and then abandoned. Despite this, no one has ever documented the history of humane work, any relationship between adopting black cats or black cats being killed and injured. When such killings are reported, forensic evidence has pointed to natural predators such as coyotes, eagles, or raptors as the likely cause. Mm -hmm. Um, every time I hear raptors, though, I think velociraptor. I know, right? And then you're like, that's not what it is. It's not what it is. Right. Um, limiting or suspending adoptions around Halloween also places more cats of all colors at risk of dying in shelters due to overcrowding. August 17th uh, is coming up next month, and that's Black Cat Appreciation Day. Aww. Wayne H. Morris created the day in honor of his late sister, June, who had a black cat named Sinbad. The day was chosen in memorial of June's passing. In the early days of television in the United States, many stations located a, VA, uh, a VHF channel 13 used a black cat as a mascot in order to make more sport of being located on an unlucky channel number. Um, there are notable black cats in, you know, pop culture and around different things. Um, we have Salem from Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. Of course. Uh, the like U- the UK... The UK government adopted several cats from uh, Battersea Dogs and Cats Home as mousers, so like to hunt mice. Oh, yes. Gladstone. Gladstone is known as the chief mouser of HM Treasury. Um, I love it India. when they put animals in jobs and give them titles. I know. I, I love when they give them uniforms. Now, Ooh. Gladstone just has a really nice collar. He doesn't have, like, a little uniform. Because he's got be, to um, be agile. He's the chief mouser. Right? He's the chief mouser. So, um, <laughs> India, also known as Willie, who lived for 20 years from 1990 to 2009, was the cat owned by George W. Bush and Laura Bush when they lived in the White House. Trim sailed with Matthew Flinders as he mapped the coastline of Australia between 1801 and 1803. He was a ship cat. Yeah. Hodge was a cat belonging to Samuel Johnson. Most of what is known about Hodge comes from James Boswell's biography, and a statue of Hodge stands outside Dr. Johnson's house. And Oscar, the bionic cat, <laughs> had his back legs cut off for, for, by a uh, combine harvester while sleeping in a field in Jersey. He was flown to the UK and received prosthetic limbs in an innovative operation in 2010. We were seeing him online. He's got those cute little, like, little chopstick legs now in the back. Yes. They're so cute. Um, Mr. Misopheles of of cats. Of course. Um, Felix the cat. The cat in the hat, although he has some white to him, but uh, tuxedo cats are sometimes counted in with black cats, and I have two tuxies, so I love them. And, of course, we can't forget Thackeray Banks of Hocus Pocus. I guess I was like, he's a black cat. He's also a dead child. Or a he is. immortal child. He's an immortal child. His sister is a dead child. He watched her die, and then he became a cat. She D.E.D. dead. Ooh, what a time to be alive. What a time to be dead. What a time for any of this. Yes. All of it. 
Um, well, if you want to continue to support our show. This is a long one, y'all. We hope you liked it. And we're going to end it on, on the black cat note. And I like that black cats bring good omens because black dogs bring nothing but bad omens. I don't think there's any good <laughs> omens associated with black dogs. It's all just when I like think I, I always think, like, I don't even think black dogs, but specifically, like, Rottweilers, which are mostly black, but they have, like, the brown muzzles and stuff. Well, they say if you see, like, a supernatural, like, black dog or black ghost, it means death is coming to you or a loved one. Did I ever do the movie Man's Best Friend for I Seen It? Uh, no. <laughs> Good to know. Um, <laughs> and if you want to know what I seen it is, or if you want to listen to an I seen it, yeah. So we're actually going to change up the Patreon. So we're, I want to bring that up. So I was going to say, if you want to support our show, the number one way you can do that is to subscribe to our Patreon. We are eliminating the ghost the farts as, in the form that they're in, uh, and we're going to revamp the fifteen dollar tier. So for one dollar, you get access to the Patreon exclusive Facebook group, which is amazing and totally worth a dollar a month. Yeah. And you get to hang out with us and Christina and Mary Angela and Colleen and all, all the other list, people that you love from Dead Test Stories. We share memes mm-hmm. and make a lot of jokes and it is a great time. And that's only a dollar a month. For five dollars a month, you get access to I, I Saint It. Which once a month, that's a special episode where I tell Sarah the plot of a horror movie that she's never seen. And it's really exciting and ridiculous. And it's a good time. And that's $5 a month. So we're changing the $15 a month tier. So we're doing two things. We're going to bring in some extra content at the $15 level that is going to be hosted by the one and only and fantastic Christina. So Christina is going to make content that's going to come with the $15 level. And instead of mailing a ghost fart to your house, I'm sorry, it's just not logical anymore. I'm going to, uh, we're going to have an illustration that is only available on the Patreon. That's the $15 tier with the Christina episodes where it's going to be celebrity ghosts farting. So every month I'm going to come up with a new illustration for you of a celebrity ghost farting and it's going to be still a ghost fart it's just going to be a different method of it and it's going to be accessible right from the patreon page and that's available for you with the christina content and of course when you get that 15 dollar tier you get everything, everything from the tiers it. below it as well mm-hmm. so that's an awesome awesome way to help our show the next way you can help us out is by going to deadtimestories.com buying some merch, get some merch. y'all Deadtime Stories, all one word, with a Z, dot com. You can buy merch from us. And, of course, if you can't afford to help us monetarily right now, that's totally understandable. You can still do us a total solid by giving us a five-star review on the iTunes store and send us an email. And if you know what, are we still doing stickers, right? I mean, yeah, but no one sends us any things. And we were Nobody starting does to make it anymore. stickers, so. But if knows, you, if you send take. Email. If you take a screenshot of your five-star review and you email it to us at deadtimestories, all one word with a Z, at gmail.com, we will send you a free sticker to your house. Get with it. We'll do it. And also, on top of that, just leave us that five-star review because we're trying to get some big guests on here, and that really helps our traction. And that's really going to help us, dude. So help help us us out. Do us a a fucking favor, right? Yeah, right? Okay. All right. (laughs) Sorry to be so hostile. Yeah, be oh no, that's typical deadtime stories. 
You remember when we berated a fan so much she changed her three-star rating to a five-star rating? <laughs> because that happened, and that's because we get shit done. And we thank you so much for changing your rating, and now you're one of our favorite stories. I appreciate it. You're one of our favorite stories. Ooh, the only Sarah. person whose rating we haven't changed is that guy on Facebook who said that we, we, said that we talk, talk too, much. too much and we make fun of people's ghost stories. Yeah, well. Sorry, not sorry. That should be dick. the new description of the show. Sarah and Stephanie, sorry, two best sorry. friends who talk too much and make fun of people's ghost stories. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Follow well, please. I think that wraps it up. <laughs> <laughs> Leave a review, please. A Listen. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's it. it. I'm Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Stephanie. I'm That's S- me. That's me. I'm Sarah. <laughs> and I'm Stephanie. We got it. And this, this has been, been Dead Time Stories. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You bitch. We're doing it for the fans.